I was trying to think of the right word to use to describe the experience of being in the Roman gladiatorial arena. And the word for me that kept coming to mind was this idea that it was a visceral experience, meaning all of your senses are engaged when you're watching the gladiators fight in the Roman Colosseum, right? And so I I want you to, to picture this with me. Imagine an ancient structure that yet has the engineering ability to hold thousands of people. And in this Colosseum with thousands of people, you have the emperor and you have the Roman nobles and all of the pomp and the circumstance that comes with that and the flash of color of their royal robes. And you have the cheering of the crowd, which was often whipped into a frenzy as they watched gladiators clash in battle. Right? And sometimes it was one-on-one, sometimes it would be whole groups of gladiators. And so there's this, the, the sharp clang of steel on steel, and there's the smell of, of, of dirt and sawdust, and literally the smell of blood, and there's the screams and the roar of the crowd. This is a visceral experience, albeit an incredibly violent one. So I want you to picture this in your mind. The crowd is cheering and and they're watching gladiators fight. And in the next moment, uh, wild lions are released among the gladiators. And it's this fight for the battle, uh, fight to the death in this moment of battle. And on this particular day in the second century, around 153-ish, Right right in the middle of this visceral, bloody, dirty, sweaty, loud experience, a door at one end of the arena opens. And the crowd is there anticipating what's going to come through the door. Will it be an army of gladiators to fight to the death? Will it be wild animals who, who fight against the gladiators? And through this arena door hobbles an 86-year-old man. And, and part of me would like to think that the Roman crowd would have been subdued and sobered a little bit when they watch an old man walk into the arena. And yet I have to imagine that they're whipped into such a frenzy and they're so excited that they continue to cheer. And this 86-year-old man that had been led into the arena was none other than Polycarp, the pastor of the church at Smyrna. A few days prior to this, Polycarp was eating dinner in his home and Roman soldiers burst through the door and they said, Polycarp, we're placing you under arrest. The charge was that he refused to acknowledge the emperor as divine. Now, the soldiers probably imagined (laughs) that Polycarp would be afraid, that he'd be nervous. And yet, as the soldiers broke through, Polycarp downplayed the situation and he said, hey, will you bring food for the soldiers? And he he fed the soldiers that were going to arrest him. And he looked at the soldiers and he said, I would like an hour to pray. The Roman soldiers look at each other and they're amazed at the fearlessness of Polycarp, this 86-year-old man. And so they look at each other and the captain says, you can have an hour to pray. So the soldiers sit down to a meal and they wait for Polycarp to pray. And after he's done praying, they, they proceed to place him under arrest and carry him away. And now three days later is when Polycarp finds himself in the Roman arena awaiting to see what would happen to him. And the proconsul of the Roman government, uh, the Roman official, he walks up to Polycarp and he says, listen, it's simple. What I need you to do is to curse the name of Jesus Christ and I need you to declare that Caesar is Lord. Polycarp looked at him and he asked this question. He says, do you know who I am? 
And the proconsul says, yes, I understand that you're a leader in the church of Smyrna. I need you to curse the name of Jesus Christ and declare that Caesar is Lord and I can spare your life. And Polycarp looked at him and he said, 86 years I followed Jesus. He has never done me wrong. He said, I cannot curse the name of Christ and I will not. At this moment, the crowd begins to cheer, asking for a lion to be released to eat an 86-year-old man. Imagine the coldness and the callousness of the crowd asking to see this man put to death, right? This is the state of the culture that Polycarp is living and ministering in. Again, the proconsul comes up to him and he says, I have the power to put you to death. Curse the name of Christ and you can live. And again, Polycarp refuses. At this point, the soldiers seize Polycarp, they bind him and they place him on a pile of wood and they set it aflame. Now, according to some traditions, the flames didn't consume Polycarp and the soldiers weren't sure what to do. And so according to one tradition, a soldier ran forward and plunged his sword into Polycarp's heart, killing him. And so it's said that Polycarp, pastor at the church of Smyrna, died from sword and flame. And he died for his refusal to curse the name of Christ and declare Caesar as Lord. Now, church, I I tell you that story because today we're going to read in Revelation chapter 2 the letter from Jesus Christ to the church at Smyrna. And I think it's important that we understand the cultural climate that was unfolding at the church at Smyrna as we read this letter. So with that, we pick up. In Revelation chapter 2, beginning in verse 8, it says, To the angel of the church in Smyrna, write, These are the words of him who is the first and the last, who died and came to life again. I know your afflictions and your poverty, yet you're rich. I know about the slander of those who say they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Do not be afraid of what you're about to suffer. I tell you, the devil will put some of you in prison to test you. And you will suffer persecution for 10 days. Be faithful even to the point of death, and I will give you life as your victor's crown. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who is victorious will not be hurt at all by the second death. Here's this key tension I want us to wrestle with today is how can the church maintain a faithful identity and witness through all seasons? How can we as the church, how can we remain faithful to our identity as Christ followers? And how can we have a faithful witness in a culture that at times is opposed to the call and the cause of Christ? And and I read this letter to the church at Smyrna, and they're a church that is facing persecution. They're a church that is facing a, a crisis moment. And yet this letter of Jesus to the church at Smyrna is to encourage them to hold fast, to hang on to their faith. Now, here's a pastoral confession for you. I'll be honest with you and say, for a long time, I really didn't like the letters to the churches in Revelation. Can I just say that? For a long time, for years, as I read these letters to the seven churches, I thought, man, what a downer. When you read these letters, five of them are incredibly, uh, almost harsh. Right? We talk about Ephesus who forgot their first love. We talk about Laodicea that Jesus says, you're so lukewarm, I want to vomit you out of my mouth. Right? What a great word to receive from Jesus Christ. Right? Your faith is so terrible, I literally want to vomit you, spew you out of my mouth. 
And and for a long time, I had read the letters to the seven churches as sort of these harsh words of rebuke and God is angry with the churches. But but church, can I tell you, as as I was reading and studying and praying through these letters over the last few weeks, do you, you know what changed for me? is I realized these are not letters of God being angry with the church for how they've messed up. What I realized, church, is these seven letters to the churches in Asia Minor, these are the words of a loving father writing to a church in crisis to say, the moment that you're in culturally is so important that you cannot afford a half-hearted, lukewarm, forgetting your first love kind of faith. The moment is such, church, that you must rise to the occasion and be people who boldly and courageously and fearlessly push into following Christ. There is no middle way here, right? This is a moment of urgency where Jesus is saying to these churches in Asia Minor, you cannot afford to be lukewarm. Push into this thing. It might even demand your very life. So let's talk about the setting and the situation. What's happening in the churches in Asia Minor at this time? A couple things. One, Uh, the churches in in Asia Minor are experiencing a profound cultural shift. Starting with Emperor Nero and then Emperor Domitian after him, the Roman government is increasingly antagonistic towards Christians. And so what happens is you have this sort of cultural shift where once Christianity was maybe tolerated as a weird little sect or cult in Roman culture, now Roman society is outright antagonistic towards the church. In fact, there's the rise of what was called the imperial cult. And the imperial cult was this belief that Caesar was divine. And increasingly, the Roman government was asking its citizens to declare that Caesar is Lord. Not just that Caesar is a ruler, but in declaring Caesar is Lord, you were declaring that Caesar was a god, that Caesar was divine. And in fact, the churches in Asia Minor were competing to see who could be the first to have the privilege to build a temple to the emperor. Smyrna was one of those cities. In fact, Smyrna was one of the first cities to build a temple to the emperor. And so right here in the city of Smyrna, which was a wealthy city that was prospering, they built this temple to the emperor and they were encouraging citizens to proclaim Caesar as Lord. And so the church is feeling this pressure that if they don't capitulate, if they don't cave into this cultural moment and declare that Caesar is Lord, their very lives were on the line. And so the church is experiencing pressure from the state of the Roman government. The church is experiencing pressure culturally. Economically, if, if you were a Christian tradesperson, say you're a stonemason or a carpenter, and it's known that you're a Christian, you were less likely to be hired because people didn't want to be associated with a Christian who wouldn't declare that Caesar was Lord. You were a political threat. They're also at this time facing uh, pressure from other religions, and, and particularly the Jewish religion and the Christian faith in this moment are experiencing uh, a greater turmoil than they had ever before as the Jews try to distance themselves from the Christians who are increasingly persona non grata with Rome. And it's into this moment of persecution and suffering and affliction that Jesus sends this letter to the church at Smyrna. So church, I want to come back to that tension. Here's what I want to push into today. How can the church, and when I say the church, I don't mean the church as an organization. I mean the church as a community of Christ followers, the people to your left and right. Those of us who are gathered in worship, right? This is the church. It's people, right? How can you and I respond and live faithfully in hard seasons? Perhaps even when we face persecution and trial. 
can we live out our identity faithfully and boldly and fearlessly? I think one of the core issues in this moment, church, is the question of identity. In, in the first century, the church at Smyrna, they're facing the pressure of the question, will they change their identity? The church of Jesus Christ has always been the community of faith that has declared that Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And now at this moment in history, the church is being pressured to acknowledge that Caesar is Lord. And it's a question of, will the church violate her identity as Christ followers? Church, I want to suggest to you that our tension is the same today. We have all of these cultural influences that are encouraging the church to forfeit her identity as the body of Jesus Christ and to follow all these other things. And the question, church, is will we remain faithfully rooted in our identity as Christ followers? Will we have a transformative cultural presence that brings the hope and the transformative possibilities of Jesus to bear in our communities and workplaces and families? So as we wrestle with that tension of remaining faithful to our identity and calling, I want to encourage us using the letter to the church at Smyrna to do three things. I want to encourage us to remain rooted in truth. I want to encourage us to remain rooted in the hope of God's redemptive purposes and to respond out of that in the truth of our identity in Christ, as Christ followers. So let's talk about what it is to remain rooted in truth. And, and the reason I think this is so important is because when we encounter seasons of trial, struggle, and difficulty, I think in those seasons and those moments in particular, we are tempted to believe lies about who God is and how he works on behalf of his people. And the way that the letter at the church to Smyrna is written is written in a way to remind the people of God who God is and how he works on behalf of his people. So let, let's walk through this. I think when we encounter trials or persecution, one of the lies that we're tempted to believe is that trials and persecution are an indication that things are beyond God's control. When we encounter a season of difficulty, when we encounter a season of struggle, when we encounter a season maybe even of persecution for our faith, that sometimes we want to go, God, are you, are you in control? And if you're in control, why are you allowing these things to happen? And we find ourselves in a season of trial and struggle and difficulty, frustrated that God is allowing these things into our life. And sometimes we want to make that accusation, God, are, are you actually in control? Are you actually sovereign? Do you see what's happening in the world around us? And you can imagine for the church of Smyrna, right? This struggling small group of believers who is now facing persecution. You have to think that they're looking at God going, God, what are you doing? Do you not see the challenges that we're facing? But notice what happens in verse 8. Let's read this together. It says, To the angel of the church in Smyrna, write. And by the way, these are the words of Jesus, right? If you have a red letter edition Bible, they're in red. It says, These are the words of him, catch this, who is the first and the last who died and came to life again. Church, do you notice these core truths that, the, the, that Jesus is affirming to the church at Smyrna? He says, these are the words of him who is first and last. When Jesus describes himself as the first and last, what he means is he holds all things in his hand. Jesus is sovereign over history. What Jesus is affirming to the church at Smyrna is that he is still in control. When you are first and last, there is nothing outside of your influence. There is nothing outside of your control. And so what Jesus is affirming to this young, struggling church that's facing persecution, he says, these are the words of the 
the one who is in charge of all things, who is sovereign over everything. And then he says, these are the words of him who conquered death, who died and came to life again. Not only is Jesus sovereign over history, but Jesus is sovereign over death itself. This is the one who was nailed to the cross, but rose again three days later. So when he tells the people of Smyrna later to be faithful even to the point of death, he's reminding them that that he conquered death, that he is sovereign even over death itself. And so church, what I want to encourage you in today, if you were in a season of challenge, of trial, of struggle, of difficulty, know this, that God is present and God is sovereign and God is still very much in control even when your circumstances feel out of control. Secondly, I think we're tempted to think that trials and persecution are an indication that God has forgotten his people or doesn't care. Have you ever felt that way? During a particularly hard or challenging season? Have you ever in a moment of prayer said, God, do you see what I'm experiencing? God, do you even know what I'm going through? Do you recognize how hard this season is? Have you had a moment like that? If you read the Psalms, there are, there are numerous Psalms of lament where David says things like, how long, O Lord, will you turn your face from me? Right? And what David accuses God in those moments is he's saying, God, are you looking the other way when I'm encountering hard and difficult things? And church, I think sometimes in seasons of, of challenge and struggle and trial and difficulty, in seasons maybe where we feel like our faith is being opposed, I think one of our temptations is to believe that God has forgotten his people or, or at the very least that God doesn't care what's happening in our lives. What's interesting though is as he writes to the church at Smyrna, listen to verse 9. He says, I know your afflictions and your poverty. I know about the slander of those who say they are Jews and are not. And there's three things that God tells the church at Smyrna that he knows. He says, I know your affliction. I know your poverty. I know that you're being lied about. And I I want us to, to seize this moment of encouragement that the God of all creation looks at this small little church at Smyrna And he says, I know, I get it. I see what you're going through. Your suffering is not forgotten by God. And even in Jesus' reminder that he's the one who died and came to life again, right? Even in that, there's this reminder that not only does Jesus know what they're going through, but Jesus himself suffered at the hands of Rome. This is a savior who was nailed to the cross as a political prisoner. Why? Because he claimed to be king of the Jews. He claimed to be one who would oppose the power of Caesar. Jesus is not one who stood far off from a distance. This is the God of all creation who saw our suffering and entered creation. And Jesus himself was put to death. He knows and is familiar with our suffering. So when Jesus looks at the church at Smyrna and says, I know, I get it. We serve a God who even in moments of challenge and struggle and difficulty has not forgotten us. God knows and he sees your challenging, hard, difficult moments and I promise you he is present with you in them. The third lie that I think we're tempted to believe 
is that trials and suffering are an indication that we've been defeated. And again, you can imagine for the church at Smyrna, uh, they're a young church, not very big. They for sure weren't an influential church at this time. As they face persecution, you can imagine that they're thinking, this is it. (laughs) We've been defeated. Who who are we as a small ragtag group of people? How, How can we stand up against the persecution of an entity like Rome? And you can imagine that for the church at Smyrna, when they hear this talk of being put in prison, when they hear the talk of being faithful even unto death, you have to imagine that the church is maybe thinking this could be the end of the church in Smyrna. And yet Jesus gives them this encouragement in verse 10. He says, be faithful even to the point of death and I will give you life as a victor's crown. In other words, Jesus says, the victory is not over. You have not been defeated. The final victory is in the hand of Jesus. And he says, be faithful, remain as a Christ follower until the very end, and I will give you the victor's crown. And the victor's crown was, was bestowed in, in two key places. It was bestowed at the end of, of a race or a feat of physical strength where the person showed themselves to be capable, or the victor's crown was given at the end of a military campaign. But either way, the idea is that the victor's crown was bestowed on the one who was faithful to the end and overcame even difficult moments. And what Jesus is saying to the church at Smyrna is that this is not over. You might be in a hard, challenging, difficult season, but you have not lost. You have not been defeated. The victory is yet to come. And church, I want to remind you and encourage you this morning. Maybe you are in a hard, difficult, challenging place, a place where you feel like God has forgotten you, a place where you feel like God has abandoned you. But church, I promise that he knows. I promise that he is present. And I promise that the final victory is yet to come and will be bestowed as a gift of God's grace because of his restoration and redemption and salvation that Jesus, the one who conquered death, can bring. So secondly, I want us to remain rooted in the hope of God's redemptive purposes. We, church, have to be a people who remain rooted in the hope that God is still moving and active and working. And there's three things I want us to hold to. And it's the purpose, promise, and presence of God in challenging places. I think we're tempted to believe that challenging seasons of difficulty and trial and struggle are purposeless. That there's no reason for the hard things that happen. But church, I want to encourage you that even in difficult moments, that God is unfolding his plan and his purpose for your life. I have always loved slash hated Philippians 3.10. I'm not joking when I tell you I literally can't pray this yet, right? This is a verse that I say, like, Jesus, give me the courage to pray. But, I, but I'm intrigued, and I find this question fascinating, and, and I would encourage you to look this up. I always think it's interesting to look at how the disciples and the apostles and the writers of the New Testament, what did they pray for? Because when you see what they prayed for and what they prayed about, you begin to see what was important and what was priority, and they're following after Jesus, So Philippians 3.10, Paul says this. He says, I want to know Christ. Yes. And and up to this point, I I love this. And and I can pray that part with Paul. Paul, I want to know Jesus. Yes. I want to know Christ. And and then Paul continues. And he could have just stopped there and made this all better. Right? But he doesn't. He says, I want to know Christ. He says, and the fellowship of sharing in his sufferings. Come on, Paul, why did you have to ruin a great prayer? (laughs) 
I do not want fellowship with the sufferings of Christ. How about you? I mean, I see what Jesus went through and I go, man, I want no part of that. I want convenience and I want comfort and I want safety and I want stability. How about you? And yet Paul says, I want to know Christ. Yes. And the fellowship of sharing in his sufferings. He says, becoming like him in his death, in the obedience and the surrender that we see exhibited in the, in the life of Jesus, that he was so about the will of the father that Jesus says, not my will, but yours. And he surrenders his life on the cross. And Paul says, I want that kind of faith. I want to share in the sufferings of Christ because I'm obedient and faithful. I want to be like Jesus in his death so as somehow to attain to the resurrection of the dead. So in somehow to find new life in Jesus. And church, what that tells me is that when Paul prays to have fellowship with the sufferings of Christ, is that fellowship of sharing in the sufferings of Jesus is part of how we're transformed and changed and pushed forward in our Christian maturity. I, I hate this reality in my life, but I've experienced most spiritual growth and maturity in the hardest seasons of my life. But what I love about that is it says that even in suffering, Jesus is unfolding something purposeful. Or, or think about the way that Paul says it in Romans 5, right? In Romans 5, 3, it says this. It says, not only so, but we glory in our sufferings. That's weird. Who glories in their sufferings? Right? But Paul says, he says, we glory in our sufferings. Why? He says, because we know that suffering produces perseverance, perseverance character, and character hope. Y'all, I love part of that. I want to be a person of perseverance. I want to be a person of character. I want to be a person of hope. Don't you? And yet Paul says that it's suffering that has produced those things in his life. The suffering and the challenges that he's encountered have produced in him the, 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 the ability to persevere as a gift of God's grace. It's formed and shaped his character and it's rooted him relentlessly in hope. He says in verse four, perseverance, character and character, hope and hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit he's given to us. And what I love about that too, church, is that in those seasons of challenge and the seasons of suffering, that we encounter the richness of the presence of the Spirit in ways that are hard to put words to. And again, here's what I want to encourage you in. If you were in a season of challenge, of suffering, of trial, it is not purposeless. But God is unfolding something in your life and he is forming and shaping and transforming you in that season of trial and struggle and difficulty might be the exact vehicle that God is using to further form you in the image of Christ. Secondly, I want us to be reminded of the promise of God. That he, he will guide his people through difficult moments. That God has not forgotten his people and as I was thinking about this, Psalm 23 came to mind for me. And I want to I just read this for you. David says, the Lord is my shepherd. I lack nothing. He makes me lie down in green pastures. I like that idea. That, that there's moments where I'm so agitated and angry that I need God to force me to take a time out. 
right? And David says, God makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside quiet waters. Catch this. He refreshes my soul. He guides me along right paths for his namesake. Catch verse four. He says, even though I walk through the darkest valley, I will fear no evil because you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. And church, what, what amazes me about Psalm 23 is that David trusts when God leads him besides quiet waters that restore his soul. But not only that, David says, even when I'm walking through the darkest valley, I still believe and I still trust that God is guiding and directing me and God is unfolding something in my life. I love that for David, his trust in God is based on God's character, not on his circumstances that he's facing. And for me too often, when I experience bad circumstances, I go, well, God, you're not faithful. And God's saying, listen, I'm the same one that led you to quiet waters and refresh your soul. I will likewise, I will lead you and see you through this place of darkness and I love that promise of God's presence which is the third thing I want us to hold to is that God knows and is present with his people and I love this moment in Matthew 28 where Jesus is sending out the disciples and he tells them to go and make disciples of all nations baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit and teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you. That's a pretty tall order, right? Jesus is telling them, I want you to go and carry the cause of the gospel to be on mission. And then Jesus says this, and lo, I am with you always, even to the very end of the age. And here's the thing that I have to wrestle with, right? is in the moment of struggle or suffering or difficulty, when I say, God, do you even care? God, are you even present? What I'm accusing Jesus of is being a liar. And I do not believe Jesus lies. When he says, I am with you always, even to the very end of the age, I take Jesus at his word that he will never leave me, that he has never left me, and that he will never abandon his people. Come hell or high water. And what I'm praying for, church, is the depth of faith that can trust that when Jesus leads me to the still quiet waters to refresh my soul, I'm in. When Jesus says, it's time to walk through a dark valley, church, I'm asking, Jesus, give me the courage to trust you there too. But I believe that in all things, he is purposeful, that his promises are always true, and that his presence is always faithful. So what I want to encourage us, church, in is this. To respond in the truth of our identity as Christ followers. Notice what Jesus says to the church at Smyrna. In verse 10. He says, do not be afraid of what you're about to suffer. the end of that verse, he says, be faithful even to the point of death. I think there's two things that we respond in based on his letter to the church at Smyrna. Church, we need to refuse to live in fear and we need to walk in faithfulness and full surrender and full obedience to the call and to the cause of Christ. And what I think is amazing, right? And and I've said this before, I mean, the the church at Smyrna, it's a young church. It's a small church. It largely met in homes. They're not very organized. 
and they're being persecuted. Their very life is on the line. And y'all, 2,000 years later, Rome is in history books and the church is alive and well because it's empowered by the spirit of Jesus Christ who lives and reigns and, and is coming again to establish his kingdom in fullness. And I find it amazing that the Roman Empire and all its might and all its glory failed to stifle the movement of Christ. It could not quench the movement of the spirit or the fire of God is seen in and through the ministry of the church. And so whatever we're facing, come hell or high water. We are to be a church that responds without fear, that responds with relentless faithfulness. Why? Because we are rooted in the truth of who God is and how he works on behalf of his people, that we believe in the purpose and the promise and the presence of God with and in and through the church. That we might be a transformative presence in our communities, in our homes, in our workplaces to see the glory of God and his redemptive purposes revealed. I want to leave us this morning with three uh, reflection questions. What truth about God do you need to anchor your life in this week? Is there a lie that you're walking in? That God doesn't care about your circumstances, that he's forgotten you? And you need to have a moment of re-anchoring and saying, Jesus, I trust, I believe. What promise about God from scripture do you need to be reminded of? And third, where is God calling you to live out your faith proactively? Where have you been walking in fear? Where have you been walking in disobedience? And you hear the word of Jesus to the church at Smyrna, do not be afraid and be faithful. Part of my prayer for us this morning is that there's a moment of confession where we say, Jesus, I'm sorry that I haven't been submitted and surrendered in this area of my life. Help me to be faithful, Lord. As we close this morning, the band is going to lead us in the song called Fresh Wind. And I love it that it's this prayer for a fresh outpouring of the Spirit of God. And I pray, church, that this is true of us, that we would see the Spirit of God poured out anew and afresh. Would you pray with me this morning? Jesus, I thank you for who you are. And Lord, I, I thank you... <laughs> for your letter to the church at Smyrna. That when they're facing a hard, (laughs) difficult, challenging season, you write to them in love and grace to encourage them to take hold of their call and identity to be your people. And I pray, Lord, that likewise, that we would be a people who respond as you call the church at Smyrna to respond. Lord, would we be a people who walk in our identity as Christ followers without fear, Would we be a people as Christ followers who are faithful in all the places that you have blessed us with influence? Lord, help us to be faithful to steward those places and those moments of influence in a way that aligns with your truth. And Father, when we encounter seasons of trial and struggle and difficulty, Lord, help us to be rooted in your truth. Help us to be reminded that your purposes always are seen through to fruition, that your promises never fail, and that your presence is ever prevailing. And because we believe and trust those things about you, Jesus, and in the power of your spirit, may we have the courage to walk fearlessly and faithfully. We love you, Jesus, and pray this in your name. Amen.